This morning, we will be in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Go ahead and turn there, and we'll begin by reading Titus 2, 1 through 10. Paul writes, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What do you think of when you think of someone who is godly? What do you think of when you think of someone who is mature? You may think of someone who can preach or someone who can teach small group lessons or someone who knows how to rebuke well. You may think of someone who's on a team or someone who's up front all the time. You may think of someone who wins the Kahoot game when it's about theology, or even better, if they can wax profound about that theology. It's for sure someone who wears a tie, isn't it? Someone who knows all the obscure hymns when everyone around you isn't singing. You may think of someone who has it all together enough to get into multiple good med schools. They're disciplined. They're godly, right? When it comes down to, it, down to it, whether we are right or not, we think of, to be really honest, really superficial, outward signs that someone is godly, someone is mature. Our passage this morning, Titus 2, 1 through 10, confronts our pursuit of godliness, and it's in this way. It's just straightforward raw instruction on godly character. What Paul calls sound living. The word sound meaning healthy, in good health. And this instruction is so straightforward, he has to categorize it by age and station in life. These are character qualities that that is at the core of what it means to be 
godly. What it means to be godly men and women in God's church. Older women, older men, younger women, younger men, and slaves. This is the kind of character that is rooted in the heart, the inward reality of what we believe, and then it works its way outward and manifests itself in our lives. And so we won't look at this passage like we normally might in sections, um, but we'll look at principles that are interwoven in this passage to see Four principles of sound living. Four principles of sound living that will help us live a life that beautifies the gospel. What does it mean to be godly? What does it mean to be mature? These four principles will help us to understand what it looks like to live a life that beautifies the gospel. So first, we see the purpose of sound living. The purpose of sound living. In this passage, Paul tells Titus in verse 1 to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Look at verse 1. But you, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see, in contrast to the, the circumcision party, the false teachers we looked at last week who profess to know God but deny him by their work, Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, not teach sound doctrine, but teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is fitting for sound doctrine? The word sound here means healthy, or in this case, without error. So Paul is saying correct or healthy doctrine should come with something that fits it, should come with something that accords with it. You see, steak in the morning should come with eggs. Steak in the evening should come with, oh, y'all said rice, but potatoes. And the right dessert, too. Sound or healthy doctrine comes with sound or healthy living. You see this truth all throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 talk about the right doctrine of God, how he called us from before time. And Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to, you know this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Romans 1 through 11 talk about the righteousness of God. And in 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, always is accompanied by sound or healthy Living. And so Paul is saying, if you believe in the gospel, live like you believe the gospel. Truth leads to truth-filled living. Life-changing truth leads to life change. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. And so throughout this passage, 
Paul shows us the purpose for this kind of sound living. It's intertwined in the practical instruction that we see in Titus 2. He shows us why we must live this way. Look at the end of verse 5 as he is instructing the women. He says that the word of God may not be reviled. Drop down to verse 8 at the end of verse 8. As he's instructing Titus and the younger men along with him. He says, so that, purpose clause, an opponent may may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. It's very clear here then, the way that we live, this sound living that accords with sound doctrine, should be such that we don't bring a reproach upon the gospel. We, like our leaders, as we saw in chapter 1, in the way that we live, in our character, we should not bring a reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Word of God should not be reviled. The gospel should not be put to shame by the way that we live, because it accords with sound doctrine. Instead, this passage says, any opponent of the gospel should be put to shame or or ashamed by our humble, consistent, sound living because they expect Christians to be hypocrites, to not live like we believe. But because we live like we believe, they are put to shame. They're put to shame because the way we live, they find nothing evil to say about us. The sound way in which we live should also, though, be something that positively, look at the end of verse 10, adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. You see, it's a testimony of the gospel of God. It beautifies or makes attractive what we believe by the way that we Live. Others should not only have nothing evil to say about us, but they should be drawn into, attracted to the gospel because of what they see in our lives, the character that they see. The gospel is the most beautiful display of God's grace and mercy and love to us in Christ Jesus. I think of it sometimes as this David Attenborough, planet Earth-like sort of production. It's this raw display of Christ on the cross. And then he died, and then he was raised again by the power of God. And it's this beautiful, raw depiction of God's grace and kindness to us. Our lives, because we believe this beautiful truth ought to be a display of that kind of beauty. You see, our lives should not be this flickering eight-inch black-and-white monitor from the attic trying to depict the beauty and the wonder of planet Earth, of God's glorious gospel. Our lives should be a 77-inch 4K OLED display of God's grace and mercy, and kindness to us in Christ. Our life should beautify the gospel. It should make attractive what is already the most beautiful truth in God's word. 
And that's God's kindness to us in Christ. The way we live on the outside should cause people to wonder what's going on in the inside. The way we live should compel people to want to know the God that we know. Our lives should adorn, it should garnish, it should embellish the doctrine of God. Our lives should beautify the gospel. If you believe the beautiful gospel of God, grace on campus, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, your life should manifest that belief in beautiful gospel living. This, this is the purpose of sound living. The purpose of sound living. Secondly, we see the posture of sound living. The posture of sound living. In this passage, there are five different groups of people. There's a a whole lot going on here. But in each of these, we see an overarching theme, a characteristic posture that ties all of sound living together. It's a thread that's interwoven throughout Paul's instruction here. Older or younger, man or woman, free or slave, Paul urges us to have a posture of self-control. A posture of self-control. The word sophronos is repeated in this passage. It's translated self-controlled or in some of your Bibles, sensible. It's the idea of thoughtfulness so as to have good judgment. It's the idea of balance not playing to one extreme or the other. It's the idea of being prudent, being under control, being logical. Biblically, it's the idea of being under the power of the Spirit, not vices, not under the power of temptations, not under the power of your circumstances or your emotions or your ambitions or a drive for a career or the pressures around you from society or family, the godly person is self-controlled. The godly person is fully and only spirit-led. So there is a posture to sound living that is interwoven throughout this text thematically and grammatically tying all five groups together, a a soberness, a patience or slowness to do things. It's a reverence, a balance, a sensibility that is at the core of all sound living for all of God's people. This Christian is driven by gospel-mindedness, a gratefulness, a reverence, an awareness, an appropriateness, a thankfulness of the ever-present grace and mercy of Jesus in our lives. And you know what this is rooted in? It's not ourselves, as the term might imply, self-control. 
Grace on Campus, this is rooted in the full and final peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we were at enmity with God and through Jesus, we have peace with God, Romans 5. We have full assurance of salvation. What more could we want in this life? And so any pressure we face, any temptation, any trial, anything that would rock our world and disturb our character, we can run to that full and final peace we have with God. This is where this sort of self-control is rooted. It's a peace with God. And so at every age and every station in life, there is this posture of sensibility and self-control that by the power of the Spirit supplies the Christian a thoughtful self-restraint. This is the mark of a mature Christian. This fruit of the Spirit, this assured, peaceful stable response to anything that you face, to all of life's insecurities and uncertainties, is the posture of sound living. This is the tenor, the tone of all of godly living. And so, so far we've seen the purpose of sound living and the posture of sound living. Let's get into it. The particulars of sound living. The particulars of sound living. This is what sound living looks like for each of these five groups. First, older men. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So we look at older men and older women, I don't want you to just think, okay, this is for the people in the back of the room. This is where you will be before you know it. This is your goal, Grace on Campus. This is also, though, how you ought to understand the people in the back of the room. When you have that conversation, this is what they are trying to help you be like. So pay attention just as much because it's God's word here in verse 2. There's no exact age indicated, but by all indications, by context, we can imply that this instruction is for people who are in the latter stage of life. You think through the instruction given to older women that we'll see later, these women, by implication, are no longer raising their own children. They're past childbearing or child-rearing age. And so we can imply by the same logic that older men probably have grown children. This is someone who's, by our pastor's terms, probably either 50s or 60s or further on than that. These men, these older men, are at a golden age. They are an example to the rest of us. They are at the pinnacle of life wisdom and life experience. But they're also sweetened by having witnessed God's work over a whole lifetime. 
This is where you and I will be before we know it. This is the goal, young men. This is how you should understand, though, older saints. This is where they are. First, older men are to be sober-minded. This is the idea of being clear-headed, literally the opposite of drunkenness. Secondly, they are to be dignified, that is to be worthy of respect. There is a seriousness to them, a gravitas that you see in their lives. And then right away, Paul says, older men are to be self-controlled, prudent, thoughtful, having everyday sensibility, the kind that comes from having walked through all of life, having experienced loss, seen chaos, resisted temptation for years and years and years, in one season and in the next, not shaken or moved, but steadfast in God and under control. These men are to be sound in faith, Paul says, and in love and in steadfastness. This healthiness, this soundness for these older men is to be in their trust in God. They are to be also vibrant in their love for God and for others. And they are to be actively pursuant in their endurance to the end. They are to finish strong. Grace on campus, we are blessed to have several men who are just like this. They are at a stage in life where their wisdom about the life that God has given us can be so extremely insightful for you if you would be willing to tap into that. But not all men at that age are like this. It's a season where regret or a sense of uselessness or worthlessness can set in. And so Paul instructs these older men, live in this kind of way that accords with sound doctrine, that is reflective of the gospel. Finish strong. Live in such a way, 2 Timothy 4, 7, that is able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is what sound living looks like for older men. Now for older women. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. The word likewise is like a divine copy-paste. Like the older men, the older women are to be an example of wisdom, of balance, of self-control. As those who have experienced a lifetime of the goodness and the grace of God. First, they are to be reverent in behavior. This is the picture of someone in a temple, the demeanor of a holy person. There's an appropriateness and understanding of what is needed for each situation. This is kind of the kind of person who knows to use their inside voice in a museum. This is the kind of person who understands you don't wear Giants gear to a Dodgers game. There's an appropriateness for every situation. It's the kind of person who understands you stand when you sing in big church. 
This older woman, though, sees all of life as life in God's temple. And so they live with a reverence in their behavior for God's domain, all of life. And so she lives with this kind of reverence, uh, respect in her behavior. Older women also are to not be slanderers. This is the idea of being a malicious gossip, someone who seeks to to tear other people down. Older women are to be an example of understanding that the tongue is a fire that is hard to tame. This sometimes can come from a genuine concern for people, but Paul says there must be a self-awareness and a self-control to not let this concern for others devolve into some kind of slander. Next, older women are to be not slaves to much wine. You see, they're not only to control their tongues, not to be slanderers, they're to control their consumption of alcohol. Likely in their role in the home, These women had access to the household food and drink. And so with this temptation to drink, Paul says, don't be enslaved to it. Be self-controlled. And lastly, older women are to teach what is good, to so therefore train the young women. Older women are at this stage in life where they're no longer fully devoted to raising their own children, And so Paul says they're to raise up the younger women in the church. This is discipleship. This is Colossians 128. Literally, this word sophronizo, which is related to sophronas, this idea of self-control, literally this word, not really captured in any of the English translations, means to train up in the art of self-control, to raise them up in Self-control and sensibility. You see explicitly here what the older men and women are to be. They are to be examples of wisdom, of insight. Not wise to themselves, but of God's wisdom. They are trophies of God's saving and sustaining grace. Patiently and warmly teaching what is good not crossing their arms at people or judging them as if they haven't made similar mistakes over a lifetime or getting bitter at their lot in life or nostalgic for the good old times. But older men and older women are to be thankful for good old age in a season where they can patiently and purposefully and powerfully instruct the rest of us toward maturity in Christ. They are to be stalwart examples of spirit-driven self-control, paradigms of sound living for the rest of us. And so we thank God for older men and older women. Our culture so often relegates older men and older women to in, a, in an irrelevant sort of position. In any room, they're the last ones that people want to talk to. But in God's church, these examples of understanding God's grace and mercy and how to live that out, they should be the first people that we would want to talk to. And so I would encourage you, Grace on Campus, toward that end, to pursue older men and older women in the church, the ones we have on staff, but the ones all around campus on a Sunday. Older women and older, men and older women are to be examples of sound 
living. Let's move on to younger women in verses four and five. Older women are to train the young women to love their, verse four, husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Younger women must love their husbands and their children. When there is a temptation to resent them, when the dishes pile up, the socks get left around, the diapers are stinking, and the milk runs out at the wrong time, love your husband and love your children. Now, all you younger women who are listening right now, most of you at least, aren't there yet. You don't have a husband and you don't have children. But this is God's instruction for you. When other people inconvenience you or get at your nerves or your roommate leaves the dishes piling up, like your future husband will, I guarantee you that. Love your husband and love your children. Love the others around you when they inconvenience you. There's a reason why Paul puts this here. Younger women are also to be self-controlled. There we have it again. Prudent, thoughtful judgment. Whether in speech or emotions or thought life or anything else in life, be self-controlled, younger women. Younger women are also to be pure, Now, this isn't narrowly just referring to sexual purity, though that's included. This is the purity of heart that gives back wrong change at Ralph's or the purity of heart that knows how to shut off the provocative show that's kind of unhelpful to your soul. This is the kind of purity of heart that says, I need to get out of this inappropriate situation. Women of Grace on Campus, you are to be pure. Younger women in the church are to be working at home. Productive. This is Proverbs 31. Let's just have at it. It's here in the Bible. We're going to talk about this today. And I know that the Q&A in the afternoon will be helpful toward that end to talk about what this looks like. Paul is saying the priority needs to be in the home. It starts in your heart in these years when you don't have your own home. You don't have a husband and children. But it starts now. Women of Grace on campus, you are going to have to reconcile your college education, uh, potentially a master's degree or even a PhD, the opinion of your parents, your own ambitions, pressure from your boyfriend, eventually maybe a mortgage even, with the fact that for most of you, God will give you a family. And that's going to be a beautiful thing. That comes along with the fact, though, that God calls you to be a worker at home. It's a beautiful responsibility. But you would do well even now, today, to at least take your foot off the gas pedal of your life, to think about this. Not saying to slam on the brakes here or even pump the brakes. Just learn where the, where, the, where the brake pedal is today. 
You don't have a husband and children and a a home to call your own quite yet. But start that process of thinking about what this might look like and start that even now in your life. God's beautiful design for the family gives you a role. It gives you a role that you are to be working at home, that your primary ministry ought to be your family. And if you embrace God's design, by God's grace, you will see a lifetime of fruit. You'll see children who know and love and obey the Lord, a husband that loves you and leads you in the way that he should, and a life of ministry together as a family in God's church. I want to encourage you, there's not only one way to do this. I know you think that. I know you assume that everyone around you, especially here at Grace, is telling you that, that there's one way to do it. There's not. There's not only one way to do it. You don't have to be a homeschool mom with six kids. Just being honest. This doesn't mean that everything you're doing and accomplishing at UCLA is pointless. This passage, God's word here, is simply saying your priority needs to be the home. That is God's glorious role for you in the life of the family, in the life of the church. This isn't demeaning your abilities or putting aside your education or denying your potential for even society. This is instead a groundedness, a self-awareness, a self-control over your life ambitions to realize and submit to the role God has set out for you in the home. Because what God has set out for you as a woman created in his image should be your highest ambition. And so my simple encouragement to you, women of grace on campus, is to start right now. Start working through it. Talk to other girls about it. Talk to our staff women about this, about the journey it is to bridge the gap between where you are now and where you should be. Because God says here in his word that you're to be worker at home. Pray about it. Ask the Lord that he would grow your heart in a desire for this. Look up just a little bit from your studies and look down the road of life. And anticipate this. Work this out in your own heart and start now. Younger women are also to be, as this passage says, kind. You see, they're not workers at home in the sense of just grabbing hold of everything and running forward without everyone else around them. Younger women are to have a temperament that is kind. That is doing all of these things with a warmth, a sweetness, a genuineness. And finally, young women are to be submissive to their own husbands. This goes along with everything we've already seen. This is a voluntary, willing submission, a deference to not every man in the room, but their own husband. This is rooted again in an understanding of God's design for the family. The husband is to be the loving, sacrificing, servant leader. And the wife is to be loving, submissive, complement to that kind of leader. Ephesians 5 
gives us this picture of Christ in the church and marriage. And so that, that is the beautiful context to the kind of submission that Paul is talking about. It's not demanded by the husband, but it's prompted by love. That's God's design for marriage, and part of God's design is that there's to be submission on the part of younger women to their husbands. This is what sound living looks like for younger women, younger men. Let's look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. For all of the characteristics so far given by Paul to Titus to instruct what accords with sound doctrine, a list of things for older men, a litany of things for older women, and a handful of things also for younger women, for young men, he says simply, be self-controlled. The phrase in all things or in all respects that you see in verse 7 grammatically comes at the beginning of verse 7. And most commentaries actually would say this belongs with this phrase. That is to say, be self-controlled in all things or be self-controlled in all respects. That's probably a better way to understand that phrase. And so Paul is saying, be sensible, be thoughtful. Be self-controlled in your sexual purity, in your life ambitions, in your competitiveness, in your interactions with our women here, in your spending, in your consumption of food and drink, in your Netflixing, in your Snapchatting and TikToking, in your next-gen gaming, be self-controlled. Be sensible. Be balanced. Be grounded. Be self-controlled. Young men, this is all that Paul has for you in this passage. Be self Controlled. Live under the power of the Spirit, not under the power of your vices or desires or ambitions. Now, as a young man myself, I thought most about this section, even though it was the shortest. And I thought of two things that I, I think that I'm most concerned about for the men of Grace on Campus here. And the first concern that I have, men, is that you would pursue self-control in all areas of life, in all respects. Not just most of your life, or that generally you seem like a self-controlled person, but that in all areas of life, you would be self-controlled. Not one area that's okay to sort of be a little bit more lax in or one sort of secret hidden sin that's okay if the rest of your life looks self-controlled, but that in all respects, all areas of life, you would be self-controlled. I've been at Grace on Campus and Grace Church long enough 
14 years that seen young men over and over and over slip off into excess during college, but also after with video games or drinking or pornography or even television and social media or even something that was just a hobby at first. And these men, they've shipwrecked their faith because of one area. And it breaks my heart to see that because of a lack of self-control in one thing, that they no longer follow Jesus. And so young men, be self-controlled in all respects. My other concern as I was thinking about this for our men is that you pursue self-control in a humble, sincere manner. The fruit of the Spirit that is self-control is closely linked to the fruit of the Spirit that is humility. It can be so easy to pursue this this area of self-control in all respects of life, but to do it in a way that calls attention to yourself, that does it for a purpose other than to put the gospel on display. And that purpose, namely being to call attention to yourself. This kind of pursuit of self-control is one characterized by humility, not pride. This is a surrendering a humble examining of your own life. This is the kind of pursuit that takes the Lord seriously, not yourself. And so, man, I would urge you to pursue self-control in a humble, a sincere manner. It's easy to look like you're pursuing self-control, but really you're trying to make yourself look godly or mature for your small group leader or for a girl or for girls. Men pursue self-control in a humble and sincere manner that takes the Lord and his word seriously. Commit yourselves to pursue self-control in all areas of life and do it humbly. Do it for the Lord that your life might beautify the gospel. Paul also addresses Titus directly in verses 7 and 8 here. And Titus, being a young man himself, given instruction here, this is sort of extra credit. This is additional instruction for the young man. Paul says, be a model of good works. This is being a model of good deeds toward others, practical outward things to do for other people that point to a redeemed life. And look at verse, uh, end of verse seven. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. This word speech or teaching, those two words are teaching, but also informal speech. That is to say that Paul, that Paul says to Titus, in your words, whether you speak with a microphone or without, show integrity, 
show dignity and show in the way that you, that you speak a soundness, a healthiness. The content of your words, the manner in which you speak, whether from up front or one-on-one with somebody, it shows a consistency, a seriousness, a gravitas that cannot be condemned. It's a testimony of someone who knows Jesus. And so this all, the self-control, this example of good works, and the soundness in speech is the sound living of young men to be self-controlled, committed to good deeds, and sound in speech. Lastly, and surprisingly, most powerfully, we see in the life of slaves in verses 9 and 10 that we are to be committed to sound living. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I believe it would be unfair to say everything in verses 9 and 10 directly applies to workers in the workplace whether at Taco Bell or Ernst & Young. I think that's an unfair way of understanding slaves as they are to be submissive to their masters. I think a better application is to think of slaves in verses 9 and 10 as Paul's argument of lesser to now greater. That is to say, by God's grace, Grace on campus, nothing you, by God's grace, in this life will ever experience, will ever be like these slaves' lives. Even if your master were a kind man or your conditions were good, if you were a slave in the times of the Bible, whether by prisoner of war or by purchase, you were property. You were somebody else's person. They owned you. Slaves were at the very bottom rung of the societal ladder. And so I believe what we should draw from Paul's addressing slaves here isn't that you shouldn't steal paper clips from the office, even though you shouldn't. It's that even for those with no control over their own destiny, given an unchangeable lot in life, at the very bottom of the societal barrel, Paul says to even these people, live a sound life. Live a life that brings no reproach on Jesus. Live a life that somehow adorns the doctrine of God. Live a life that beautifies the gospel. As such, slaves are to be first submissive to their own masters in everything. Slaves were in no position to change their status. They couldn't just decide to go somewhere else like we can. And Paul knows that, but he's saying still submit. Don't dream of changing your status, slave, or somehow act outside of it. Subject yourself purposefully. In your heart, submit to your earthly master because you submit to your heavenly master. Slaves also in this manner are to be well-pleasing. They're to be found approved or acceptable. 
that slaves are to be not argumentative, not talking back or debating. This is a practical kind of submission. Slaves are also to not pilfer, that is to not steal. As a slave, it would be tempting to cut corners or take extra from one's own work to sort of ease the life of a slave. But Paul says instead, show all good faith. So to even an unbelieving master, a slave would be a powerful testimony of the gospel by showing all good faith, being found trustworthy, obedient, faithful. Slaves here are the most powerful demonstration of God's instruction for us in Titus 2, 1 through 10. That at the very lowest of society in biblical times, in the most unalterable of life circumstances, if slaves are to be gospel light in how they live, shouldn't we also, as those middle class choose where we want to live, apply to a bunch of graduate schools and find the job that pays us a hundred grand a year type of people? Shouldn't we as, as older women and older men and younger women and younger men find a way to be adorning the doctrine of God our Savior? If Paul holds this high standard for slaves, shouldn't we also beautify the gospel as those freed from sin by Jesus Christ? This is sound living. This is what Paul says is a life that beautifies the gospel, a life marked by self-control, by sensibility. This is a life of godly character. Lastly, we see the plan for sound living. The plan for sound living. You see the method by which Paul sees sound living playing out in the church? is that you aren't supposed to do this alone. These aren't commands in isolation. This isn't a list for you to just figure out how to be godly and go home in your room and figure out how to live your life. The plan for sound living, God's method for those things in this list to affect our lives involves gospel community, involves the church. First, we see that these things that accord with sound doctrine very simply are to be taught. Remember verse 1. And again in verse 7, Titus and the men here at our church are to teach these things. And so for you, the listener, you should be drawn to learning about very practical and characteristic sort of things. How to be godly. Don't wince when someone tells you, be self-controlled, be godly. In this season, in college, you need to have the humility to know that you need this. You need to realize in this season, you need input. In your efforts toward maturity, you need the teaching of God's word. You need to listen to sermons and small group lessons, but you also need to digest them. You need to be praying through what you hear and asking God to to use his truth to affect your life. 
Secondly, this plan involves also that these things are also given by example. You see, God's plan is that in community, we would pursue these things together. These things are taught, but these things are also caught. Your way of life, as hard as you are trying, as well as you may be doing, as good as you may feel about how you're doing in godliness, as well as your dating relationship may be going, or how well your ministry may be doing, you need the input, the counsel, the wisdom, the discipleship of others around you. You need godly examples. You need encouragement. You need challenging. You need discipleship. This doesn't mean just having an older person to meet up with, to just talk to, who will just support you in whatever you do, or who will tell you what to do. This isn't just having someone that you can tell all your decisions to after you've already made them. This means having someone who knows your life, who walks alongside you. Someone from whom you are seeking counsel and actually working through decisions with, through the lens of Scripture. You need to be asking good questions, processing and digesting and praying with and working through with this person and thoughtfully applying yourself to the role, to the responsibilities, and to the responses God has set out for you in his word. Men, you need older men in your life who are examples of what it means to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Women, you need older women in your life who can train you to be lovers of your husband and children, self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to your husband. In all of this, men and women, that the word of God may not be reviled and that you would adorn the doctrine of God, that you would beautify the gospel. The Sneetches is a Dr. Seuss classic. Read it to my son probably 10 times in the past five days. Sneetches were a big-bellied, big-bird kind of looking creature. And some of them had stars on their bellies. And some of them had no star on their bellies. Of course, the special ones were the ones with stars on their bellies. And as the story goes, Sylvester, McMonkey, McBean, kind of an entrepreneurial marketing major kind of type, comes to town and he promises stars for just $3 from his star on machine. And as the story goes, these sneetches go through Sylvester McMonkey McBean's star on machine to be special, and then his star off machine to be special. And they kind of chase each other, these two groups of sneetches, in star awning and star offing in mindless pursuit of being special. 
And Sylvester McMonkey McBean laughs his way all the way to the bank. He's a smart dude. In our pursuit of godliness, Grace on Campus, in our pursuit of maturity, our pursuit of pressing on, I think we, we think we act like there is some sort of star on machine, a godliness on machine here at Grace on Campus. I think we often think that well, if I am here at Grace on Campus, I'm here at Grace Church, that there will be some sort of magical godliness star on machine, that if I'm in this environment just for the right amount of time, and if I pay the right amount of money to go to the right conference, that I'll be just more like the people around me. I think you think that you'll automatically be the sort of person that God wants you to be. That in your growth as a young woman, young woman or a young man of God, that there is some sort of osmosis that happens here. You might know what the Bible says about who you are to be, but you're not putting any sort of real effort or any sort of real prayer or any sort of real work or reading or time on your knees into growing into these specific areas that God has called you to be Christ-like. And so my prayer is that this retreat or even this sermon would be a turning point for you. That it would be a starting block for you. For you to have seen plainly the godly character God calls you to, that God wants you to have. For you to begin a lifetime of a pursuit of sound living. Not just so that you would be more godly, that you would be more attractive to other people, that you would be a better person, but that your life would be a real, tangible display of gospel truth to those around you. That you would adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior, because you live in a way that accords with that sound doctrine. Grace on campus, let's beautify the gospel in the way that we live. Let's be self-controlled. Let's live in a manner to, that is fitting to the calling which, with which we've been called. Let's live godly lives, not for ourselves, but for God's glory. Let's live in this sort of sound way. Let's beautify the gospel together. And would that be for his glory and his glory alone? Let's pray. God, thank you for this chance to look at your word. Admittedly, God, a, a difficult passage with a lot of things that we need to, to study and we need to think about. We need to examine. Lord, humble us, even having heard from your word, that, God, we would pursue these things. Not so that, Lord, we would look good, but, God, that the gospel would look good. Would our lives beautify the gospel. Lord, help today be a way that we can start this pursuit, work in our hearts and in our lives, even today in your son's name. Amen.